You're listening to Food for the Future on 980 CFPL and 980CFPL.ca. Here's your host, Peggy O'Neill. I'm Peggy O'Neill, home economist and host of Food for the Future. Today, we return to the monthly series, City Farming, in which we discuss new ways to think about food systems in urban settings. Today, we'll talk about garden safety and what's happening in our new season with Amy Turnbull, London Middlesex Master Gardener. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for having me on again. It's a pleasure to have you back. And as I was telling you before the show, you are one of our best of guests. So I'm very glad that you're uh, back again. Amy, just for listeners who may not have caught the uh, show, who could go back and find it on the Global News Web archived shows, can you just give us an overview about what London what London Middlesex Master Gardeners do and how someone can become a Master Gardener? The London Middlesex Master Gardeners are a group um, within the Master Gardeners of Ontario. So there's um, Master Gardeners in all the major city centres. We provide unbiased science-based gardening advice to the public and we volunteer um, our time to promote gardening education. We're just a bunch of people that really, really like gardening and we love to talk to the public about it. Um, if anyone is interested in becoming a master gardener, you can just find our website, London Middlesex Master Gardeners, and contact us, come to a meeting and see if you like what we're about. And then um, if you do, you can take a couple of gardening courses and um, come to um, volunteer at some of our events. Sounds great. So lots of education, lots of inspiration, and a really cool network of people who have green thumbs, but also a lot of information. So that's one of my personal goals. You know, they say champions make it in the second half, and I'm in the second half, Amy. So one of the things I have to do before the last lap is become a master gardener. So you've inspired me, and it's definitely going to, I'm going to get going on it soon. For now, uh, I enjoy the seed swaps or CD, all the, all the events that you have. And for today, we'll carry on with all the knowledge that you have to share. So we're talking today about um, garden safety and all the things that we, um, you know, get so excited in the gardens or or maybe misestimate things that we want to have a happy, safe season overall. And many people are reconnecting with nature and, and really finding happiness in their vegetable and herb gardens. And I know so many people that are. And there's a few things to keep in mind in terms of safety. And what advice do you have regarding exposure, various forms of exposures? Uh, well, regarding sun exposure, the major type of exposure you might experience in the garden, um, it's important to wear a sunscreen, at least SPF 30, and put on a wide brim hat so that the sun is actually off your face. And it's really important to limit the sun exposure between the peak hours. Sometimes you hear 10 and 2 is the peak hours to avoid, but that doesn't take into account daylight savings time. So it really should be 11 and 3. Don't be out there in the garden in that time or garden in the shade but the eastern time zone is really broad and for us solar noon is actually closer to 1 30 so it's really important for us to not be out in the sun between 11 30 and 3 30 that's specific for the london area and i know this because i have had a lot of sun exposure in my life so that's why i pay attention to that 
Okay. Really good advice. So solar noon is around one 30. I, I didn't actually know that. And so really understanding we've talked about as on this show about how, when you're either farming or uh, urban gardening or home growing that you really are um, aware of uh, time and place, right? What's happening with the seasons, what's happening with the weather, what's happening in the time of day, whether it's windy, sunny, rainy, whatever it is. And so this is no different. So really understanding what the sun does in your gardening space relative to the trees and shade you have. But that rule of thumb here, at least in southwestern Ontario, the solar noon is 1.30. And so if you are out, definitely um, garden in the shade. Or um, it's nice, there's some really cool wide brim hats out there. And, um, you know, the Nantucket style that have those big uh, brims. And uh, so those are also fun to buy, but really helpful in terms of keeping the sun exposure uh, to uh, a, a limiting our sun exposure. Um, one of the other things I'm thinking of is when it's really windy out. Uh, do you have some suggestions for when it's really windy? Now, when it's super windy and there's weather warnings and watches, we we de definitely um, have to pay attention to whatever advisories are going on. There are times, though, um, I've really felt I've needed goggles or something because it is so windy and I, I didn't want to get anything in my eye. So what tips and advice do you have around other types of exposure than sun? Mm. Um, wind can be a problem in the garden because the wind can pick up the soil and blow that in your eyes or other material. I've put on sunglasses before just to protect my eyes or safety glasses. It's always good to have a pair of those around. But if it is really windy, um, I probably wouldn't garden because working in the soil is going to promote that soil blowing away in the wind and soil is so precious it took millions of years to form and I don't want it to just blow away that's a huge form of soil erosion so on windy days I try to stay out of the garden and I, I feel like the plants especially the ones in our vegetable gardens are already getting stressed enough from the wind so I don't want to be disturbing them. That's a really good point. We've been thinking from a human safety perspective, but our plants as well are undergoing stress when it's very windy. And so moving soil around and doing other things is possibly not the greatest um, idea. So very good tips on managing exposure and how to be happy and healthy in the garden. How about slips, trips, and falls? There's all sorts of things that can come up um, with our equipment and uh, many other things that we're doing in the garden. So suggestions for avoiding those. Yeah, you definitely don't want to fall because that's going to cut your gardening season short. That's right. <laughs> among other things. Exactly. You want to keep the pathways clear in your garden and easy for you to see if they are clear. So trying to think about in your flower gardens, designing a space where you can see the pathway and make sure it's clear. And then in the vegetable garden, it can get kind of when you're out there working, you have hoes and rakes, and you have a whole bunch of um, tools maybe and if you're harvesting, you might have things kicked. Try to keep a pathway that's well clear because sometimes you can stumble in the garden. If there is a plant that's vining, you can hook your foot on it. So try to have a pathway. I talked to several gardeners about this question to make sure I wasn't missing anything. And everybody mentioned wearing proper footwear. Uh, it doesn't really fall under slips, trips, and falls, but 
you can accidentally hoe your foot if you're in the vegetable garden and that hurts. Yeah. It sounds very poetic, you know, barefoot in the garden. It seems, you know, we get this sort of Hollywood image of, you know, rolling, but you know what there is, um, you know, we talk about industrial safety, many, many listeners work in, in plants or farms or what have you, but there really is garden safety as well. And the proper footwear is uh, very, very helpful. And you talked about plants vining and that clear pathway is sort of your takeaway from this question, but making sure your tools are where you can see them because some of them are sharp, whether that's a hoe or whether those are, um, you, the, what are those cutters called, Amy? You know, you, um, the trimmers, the little trimmers, the pruners, the pruners, that's right. The pruners, um, and those things, they can be sharp. And if you have them in an area that's not quite visible, or if your kids are out and you know where it is and, and they don't happen to expect that it's there and, um, they might be running barefoot. Um, so that's definitely really good advice and hoses, garden hoses. You had talked about plants vining, but, uh, also garden hoses, I know have been one that have gotten the best of me in the past. So having that clear path and knowing where your equipment is, is really, really, really good advice. And, and something I'd like to mention, um, I always store the tools when I'm not using them. If I put down the pruners or put down a hoe or a rake, I always store it on the soil with the sharp side down, just because there are kids and animals and other people can come out. So if the hoe, it has the sharp side down into the soil, at least if you step on it, you're not going to step on the sharp side. And then the pruners, I close up before I put them up, even though you set them down maybe hundreds of times while you're working out there, I always store them closed just for that one time, you might misplace a finger in there. Yes, that's a very good practice. And and we've talked about ourselves and children in the garden, but also pets mm -hmm. and other critters coming out to see what's going on and making sure that those sharp uh, instruments are either closed, as you said, with the pruners or hose um, sharp side down. Great advice. Now, overexertion, there's lots of heavy lifting. I know I have overestimated, oh, I can do one trip, not two. Um, you know, I thought it'd be really efficient. And then all of a sudden, uh, I have an exertion or heavy lifting uh, strain. So how do we get through our growing season without um, overexerting ourselves, so to speak? Yes, definitely. When it's springtime and you're first going out in the garden, I think that would be a good time to injure yourself because you're just not um, conditioned properly. Uh, I think it's important to lift with your legs and keep the load small. It's better to do two loads <laughs> and, yeah. rather than one heavy one. Keep your back straight and bend your knees. And I always try to remember to keep my toes pointed in the same direction as my nose when I'm working. So that means no twisting. It's a mm. common way to injure yourself. And if you are carrying a load, trying to carry it closer to your body so you're not extending your arms um, with the load because that's going to make it harder to carry. And then I take breaks fre frequently. So if I'm feeling a little tired, take a break and then switch jobs so that you're not carrying something or shoveling for hours and hours on end. You're mixing it up so that one particular aspect of your body isn't going to tire itself and get injured. So by switching it throughout the day, it makes it much more enjoyable. All right. Really, really good advice. And I had not thought of that, but you're right. Often it's when we're twisted or in an awkward position, that's when um, our bodies don't like that. So keep the toes facing the direction of the nose. That's kind of a, almost a rhyme. You can remember that one. So that's a good one. So let's, let's turn away from um, the environment and sort of physical strains to um, the products that we're working with. So I'm thinking of manure and other fertilizers. They can be very concentrated. And um, so how should they be handled? That's a good question. 
I would handle on the manure and fertilizers with gloves on, uh, even if it's just a small amount. The chemical fertilizers have a very strong acid in them. That's the phosphorus. Mm-hmm. And it can, if you have any open cuts on your hand, you will find them when you put them in the fertilizer. So right. I wear gloves. And with the manure, I'd wear gloves just to protect myself from any bacteria that might be in the manure, depending on how well composted it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I put the fertilizers on when it's an overcast day and work with them when it's overcast. If it's a really hot, dry day, then that can help promote some of the nitrogen to leave the fertilizer as a gas. And that can be irritating to your respiratory tract. And also you're losing nitrogen and that means it's going into the atmosphere, becoming a pollutant. So handling the fertilizers and manures on an overcast day where it's not really intensely hot is a good idea. And then hopefully um, the manure isn't completely dry when you're applying it, because if it's totally dry and powdery, then you have to worry about particulates, like breathing in those really small particles. Right. So if it's a little bit wet, I mean, it's harder to work with because it's a bit heavier, not sopping wet, but just a little bit damp. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't have to worry so much about those particulates um, and inhaling them because it's slightly wetted. Okay. That's an expert's advice. I would never have thought that manure would be too dry really to be ideally spread without just a little bit of dampening with a garden hose, not making it sopping wet again to have an exposure, a a strain that we have just talked about, but also in the, um, in the, in the shadier times. So um, that's very good advice. And also manufacturers will have, and product suppliers and people um, where you garden centers will have information and advice and all kinds of safety precautions on those products, manure and fertilizers for how they should be handled. So that's another great tip. I'm thinking particularly now, Amy, in urban growing that soil safety is paramount. How can new home growers be sure their soil is uh, what kind of soil they have and that it's safe? Yeah, it's good to understand your soil. So you're gardening um, the right plants in that soil. So you would, if it's brand new soil to you, doing a soil test just for the basic nutrients and the particles in the soil, whether they're sand, silt, or clay, um, that would be a good idea to do to get an, a really high level picture of your soil. So that's going to tell you the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and then the, some of the other macronutrients, and then the type of soil you have. But then if you suspect that your soil might be polluted from previous use, you could do a soil test that looks for um, other metals like minerals in the soil, um, other organic chemicals and pollutants. It'll cost more money, maybe a couple hundred dollars. It it would be peace of mind if you were concerned. Um, And then if you really thought the soil was polluted, you could always just bring in new soil um, for a raised bed and not worry about it. And it's good to be aware that some plants bioaccumulate. So some plants are really good at taking the pollution out of the ground and accumulating it in their tissues. So if you were harvesting wild plants, this could be an issue because some of them might grow in areas that are disturbed and you might be, if you eat enough of them, then you could accumulate some of those pollutants in your body. Okay, so really, really good advice then if, um, you know, there's no concern at all, and it's been um, 
something that you're very certain about, or you're going to do a raised bed and bring in new soil that you know has been tested and there aren't any just sort of residual chemicals or anything like that. Um, I'm thinking, um, you know, if we've had more industrial land that's been converted and now housing, that there might be some things that we want to know about in the soil. So definitely, definitely look into that. And there are organizations in most communities that do do soil testing that could help with that. Wonderful, wonderful information. Thank you very much, Amy. After the break, we'll talk about what's happening in our new home growing season with Amy Turnbull, London Middlesex Master Gardener. This is Food for the Future, and I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill, home economist. Welcome back to Food for the Future on 980CFPL and 980CFPL.ca. Here's your host, Peggy O'Neill. Welcome back to Food for the Future. I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill, Home Economist. We've been speaking with Amy Turnbull, London Middlesex Master Gardener, about home garden safety. And we're going to talk now about our new growing season. Amy, what's happening in the garden? It's a busy time in the garden. Uh, right now, anytime we get some warm weather um, with no rain, so it's not that common. Every few days, it seems, we, we get those conditions. I've been popping out there to plant the cool season crops. So I've got peas, spinach, turnips, and radishes and potatoes planted. The potatoes might be a little bit early, so I might be regretting that. But the rest of those, uh, a lot of people have those in now, so the seed is planted. And I've started transplanting lettuce and other leafy greens like arugula and mabuna. And I've noticed that there is a lot of bumblebees in some of the weeds that are growing in the garden, some of those winter annuals. There's lots of bees in them, so I'm leaving them for now so that the bumblebees can get some nectar and pollen. Wow, how great to know that the honeybees are there in full force and lots to look forward to with the pollination. And there's just so much to see in the garden. You know, we're thinking of our seeds and what we're going to do and what we are creating, but there's so much there to observe as well. What has nature been doing over the winter and now in the um, new spring months? And I'm just delighted to hear that there are lots of bees there. And you had mentioned some of the old favorites that you're planting, Amy, this year. And there was one after your arugula. It was uh, Bamoa. What was that? Mabuna. Bamuma. What is that? Uh, Mabuna is a... Japanese green. It's a brassica rapa, so it's um, related mm. to um, other. Um, it's in the Jap like the Asian brassica group. So uh, it's quick flowering. It takes maybe four weeks in the garden. You plant it now, and by the end of May, it'll be giving you loads of really tender greens that you can eat raw or you can just lightly cook. And there's another one called Mizuna that is closely related. It has a serrated leaf, whereas Mabuna has a large, a smooth leaf. Wonderful. That sounds so delicious. And how wonderful. In Canada, we have a multicultural nation and we're getting to learn about all kinds of new foods, but also that our soil supports it and that we have people that know about the seeds and can help us with how to cook it in many, many different ways. Just amazing. Thank you for that, Amy. And do you have any plans to, you had mentioned the bees, do you have any plans to attract any new pollinators? And if so, what kind? Um, in my flower gardens, I'm trying to plant more native plants because there's been a big push for that in the last few years. So thinking about 
trees that serve as food sources for caterpillars. So it's, I guess, indirectly feeding a pollinator. The caterpillar will then form into a butterfly. So I've planted hop trees, um, service berry, and spice bush. And those, um, the spice bush and the hop tree are um, there because there's caterpillars that feed exclusively on them. And I have seen those um, caterpillars there. And then um, buttonbush is another native plant and it attracts butterflies when it flowers. Oh, wonderful. Fantastic. So lots of things that we can do to help mother nature out. And I, um, I'm always amazed on this show when I have guests on to hear how forgiving nature really is, whether that's the, in the thirties, the prairies was a dust bowl. We were recently talking to ducks unlimited about various uh, regenerative and restorative uh, processes. And now that's changed. We had uh, Brian Gilvesi on from Alice, which formerly was alternative land use services. And I knew what potash was, but I didn't really know how they made it and how in North uh, Norwich County, they've brought that back now. So nature will really work with us in that if you plant the types of trees and flowers that you've said you've planted, you know, you'll attract pollinators. So I think it's a positive message, you know, when I worry and we worry about, um, you know, how much time do we have left? And part of the reason why I do this show is I don't think it's too late. And I think there's a lot of people out there just like yourselves doing exactly what you do, helping mother nature out and making sure not only our vegetables grow, but the, the broader world is, is healthy and happy too. So on that point, Amy, do you, um, on that point, Amy, in this show, we bring the humanities. So history, philosophy, and creativity to today's food dialogue. How do these ways of understanding the world relate to home growing? I think that history has a, a great relation to what we do in home growing because for most of human history, we have been growing our own food in subsistence farming activities. And it's only in the last few generations it's become a leisure activity. I'm just amazed that when you look at the tools we use in the garden, they haven't changed for 10,000 years. The, the tools that we're using now are the same. I just find that amazing that, that those tools are so intuitive that they were created that long ago and that that's how they're so efficient. We use them now. That's um, sorry. sorry. I, no, I thought you were finished. Sorry. No, I'm done. <laughs> Um, that, that is amazing. And it's what you would call really good design. It's kind of like a wooden spoon, you know, you might get a little bit different material, it might have a slightly different shape or some really unique carving, but we're still using the spoon. So it's kind of comforting to know that there's been uh, knowledge and creations, things that um, have got great design that have traveled through the ages. And it's, uh, I think also, you know, we talk about unifying with nature, but we kind of unify with um, the creators of the past, um, and look to the future, uh, ourselves as creators when we're gardening and using some of these age old tools. Thank you so much for that, Amy. And as you know, the show is called food for the future. How does having a gardening community? So like London Middlesex master gardeners help build a brighter way forward for all of us together. I think we are building a brighter, uh, way forward through our gardening community that 
we're a part of. We have a seeds to table gardening course every winter. It's wrapping up now. Um, we host a CD Saturday event in March. So people come from the London gardening community and we swap seeds and it's so fun just talking to other people that enjoy gardening. We have the library plant exchanges coming up in May. So we're out there a lot in the public, interacting with other people who like to garden and inspiring them and feeding off one another to promote change. It's fantastic. We get to rediscover each other. You know, we you're in a digital era and it has its uses, but how nice to know there's another person out there that is really interested and interesting in here's this seed and this is what it likes and this is what you're going to kind of be able to predict and get and then swap with someone else who learns from you really sounds like uh, a really wonderful time. Thank you so much for that, Amy. And do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I hope for everybody gardening, we have a good season. And if anyone is interested in seeing what the London Middlesex Master Gardeners do, uh, go over to our website and um, check us out. Fantastic. And I was just thinking, you know, we hear this saying, keep going. And I'm thinking, listening to you, keep growing. (laughs) (laughs) I I won't quit my day job. Nobody panic. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Amy, for our inspiring conversation today. And I wish you a safe and plentiful growing season. Thank you. You too. Today on Food for the Future, we've been speaking with Amy Turnbull, London Middlesex Master Gardener, about garden safety and what's happening in our new season. Each week, we leave you with something to talk about and something to do. Something to talk about, what could, what would you like to grow this season, if only in your windowsill? Something to do, visit London Middlesex Master Gardeners to find out about garden tours, tips and advice, how to become a master gardener, and much more. Next week on the show, we return to the series Back to the Future. We'll be speaking with Carrie Dohey, founder of Bees for Peace, as we look forward to World Bee Day. I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill, Home Economist, and you've been listening to the weekly show, Food for the Future. Thank you to our platinum-level sponsors, Burnbray Farms, Eggs for Life, and the Middlesex London Food Policy Council. Food for the Future with Peggy O'Neill airs every Saturday at 8.30 on 980 CFPL and 980 CFPL.ca.